Welcome to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. My name is Fergal Byrne. Every fortnight, I speak to leading sustainability and environmental thinkers and practitioners, to scientists and economists, business leaders and investors, NGOs, as well as psychologists, writers and artists. We discuss the sustainability imperative and explore the key environmental and sustainability challenges from a wide variety of perspectives. We explore the latest thinking, what's working, and new ideas in sustainability, resilience, and regeneration. This week, I have a request to support an unusual and inspiring project, one which I've supported, and I hope you can as well. Four years ago, the photographer and diarist C.C. O'Hanlon and his wife Given became homeless, forced to take to the road. For the next three years, they wandered from Germany to the UK, then Morocco, Ireland, Italy, Spain. Last year, with the help of family and friends, they bought a small 300-year-old ruined house in the far south of Italy. They plan to create a stopping place, a studio, available free for short periods to like-minded, creative wanderers. They want to do this using traditional materials and architecture to cope with a desert-like climate. Now they need financial help to finish it and to fight a legal battle to allow them to reside there. Friend, the Irish artist Liz Cullinan, has set up a GoFundMe appeal to help them do this at gofundme.com slash f slash a hyphen stopping hyphen place. You can find out more about the project there. You can also follow CCO Handen via Twitter at CCO Handen. I'm very pleased today to welcome Elaine Scarry to the Sustainability Agenda. Elaine is Professor of English and American Literature of Language. She's the Walter M. Cabot Professor of Aesthetics and the General Theory of Value at Harvard University. Elaine is the author of numerous seminal books, including Thermonuclear Monarchy, where she explores the political consequences of limiting the control of nuclear weapons to a select few and the authority to launch them to even fewer. Her book, Thinking in an Emergency, explores how in the face of governments that augment their authority in emergencies at the expense of democracy, citizens and communities can prepare for emergency situations in order to preserve themselves and their autonomy. So thank you very much, Elaine, for joining me today on the Sustainability Agenda. Thank you for having me. So before we start, lots of really important questions that you've been working on and thinking about for many decades. But maybe can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, what your work is and what you're working on at the moment? Well, for a long time, I've been working on the problem of the nuclear architecture in the world. But more generally, I've been working about the problem of um, willfully inflicted injury and the uh, where we do and don't have breaks on willfully inflicted injury. Right. And you've written a number of books. One in particular that I'd be really interested in talking a little bit about is this uh, thermonuclear monarchy. Also, it, it seems that a number of themes in your books relate to to issues that are germane when it comes to looking at climate and, and the environment. And I'd be interested to see if we can tease out some of those. But just also, I like the beginning to get a little bit of a sense of uh, what's on your mind. Clearly, we're in the middle of many interlocking crises of one kind or another. But from an environmental perspective, or even more generally, what is it that worries you the most at the moment or keeps you awake, Elaine? Well, the thing that keeps me awake absolutely is the nuclear peril. 
like you and, and like many human beings across the planet, I'm very worried about global warming. But I think the U.S. diplomat Tom Countryman is exactly right when he says nuclear conflict is global warming at supersonic speed. It's just as catastrophic as global warming, um, and it happens in a, in a very short time. The distance between us and the ap- actual instantiation of uh, nuclear conflict is, is very, very short. Uh, the time period is very, very short. Just in today's papers, both in uh, Britain and in the United States, um, we have the acknowledgments that we're closer to nuclear war than we've been at any time since the Cuban Missile Crisis. But that time period, that brief time period, is something that is has been true throughout the 21st century. And we've had not only peace activists and concerned citizens, but even people who formerly occupied high positions within the uh, defense architecture of the United States now coming forward and saying, please wake up. We are in such danger from the nuclear peril. For example, the former Secretary of Defense, William Perry, who served under President Clinton, is devoting the whole final years of his life to trying to awaken the American public to the very great danger. And he uh, very much feels, even antecedent to the uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine, even antecedent to that, he was saying, we're in the same danger now that we were during the worst moments of the 20th century. So too, Henry Kissinger, um, who was... Secretary of State um, under Nixon has repeatedly tried to awaken uh, citizens everywhere, but particularly in the United States, where, um, alas, we are very obtuse about this subject, um, to awaken them to how grave the danger is. In fact, The Guardian this past July quoted Kissinger as saying that due to various developments such as developments in AI, artificial intelligence, we're in much more danger now uh, than in the 20th century. So in addition to these standoffs between leaders, um, which is a a very, very big part of the worry and mounting every day, um, we have the possibility of accidental uh, detonations, appropriation of the weaponry by hackers or by terrorists. It is, uh, and the nuclear weapon is a weapon that's designed to be used by one person. And therefore it is something that can suddenly be uh, introduced or launched by a single leader like Putin or Biden or, um, you know, any of the other heads of the nuclear states like Kim Jong-un in North Korea or um, Xi Jinping in China, Um, but it can also be appropriated by a a hacker or a terrorist. So um, it's it's a a tremendous worry, and uh, this is an abiding fact in, in the 21st century that we're in this danger. For example, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, that is a very prudent group of scientists uh, that try to get together each year or that do get together each year and compress vast amounts of information 
into a single image that people can get, and that image is the doomsday clock. The doomsday clock has for the past two years been set at 100 seconds to midnight, which is the shortest time that uh, it's ever been been at. Um, so, you know, I'm trying to stress, I want, I want to address, as I'm sure you do, the current crisis between the uh, U.S. and NATO forces on the one hand and um, Russia, and on the other hand, the continuing tensions between the United States and China and between the United States and North Korea. Um, but we should see that, that it isn't just today, even if we're lucky enough to get out of the present crises we're in, um, we should not uh, continue to be asleep on this issue. Yeah. When you uh, you contextualize this, that this is ongoing for many decades, it's uh, in part, uh, a large part, the, the actually what you call the architecture, the way it's structured, decision-making, governance, uh, openness to errors, mistakes, uh, hacking and so forth, all of that being the case. How dangerous today do you think it is? Uh, the doomsday clock, uh, as you say, it's 100 seconds uh, before midnight. Presumably, they haven't met since we've had, you know, just this rhetoric in the in, in, in the mainstream media, you know, discussions about you know nuclear attacks in ways which you know we haven't seen for, for decades or, or ever. I don't know. Certainly, I, I don't remember. Literally, as we speak right now. I mean, uh, how worried are you, and and what do you think's really happening here? Well, um, how worried am I? The the to be candid. Uh, several nights ago, um, after President Putin said that uh, that you know if necessary he would uh, you know use extreme measures against the decision makers in the Russia Ukraine war, um, I, I honestly asked myself several times if I should be trying to leave Boston. Um, now, you might say, well, Boston's very far away from Ukraine, and surely Ukraine's his target. But um, he, he has said that uh, it may be the decision makers and the part played by the United States in providing weapons and also in providing targeting information uh, and, and, you know, very concrete instructions on where to fire and how to fire, I believe, and I, I believe that Putin believes, um, means that that one should understand that this isn't just uh, something that may be absolutely catastrophic for uh, Ukraine, uh, but catastrophic for any one of a number of countries that um, Putin sees as, as uh, pushing him into what he considers a humiliating situation. Um, I don't mean it'll be worse if it if if the weaponry were aimed somewhere other than Ukraine. It will be equally bad no matter where that should happen. Um, and yet, the the kind of feeling of immunity, which which I think is perhaps less the case. I was going to say it's less the case in UK than in the United States, but no, I, I take that back. I think that both the UK and the United States in their coverage of the current conflict have um, 
continually reverted to a kind of uh, gloating and a kind of um, triumphalism uh, during war that that really doesn't seem to me appropriate for uh, mature men and women and citizens of the world. Um, that we should never be gloating over the death tolls on the on the enemy's side. We should never be gloating over the fact that generals are being killed on the other side. Um, we should never be gloating that um, that somebody is losing all their options, especially when that somebody has uh, enough weapons to uh, ignite a uh, world world nuclear war. Um, but we seem to, you know, in our in our admiration for Ukraine and admiration for the courage of Ukrainians, have forgotten one of the most important principles. Um, over many centuries of thinking about war, which is hear the other side, um, hear the other side, and um, work hard to try and understand what they're saying. It doesn't mean one has to follow what the other side is saying, but very little has been given to um, hearing the other side. I mean, and I can I can give a parallel in in the other conflicts we face. Um, you know, just just stopping for a minute to to make sure we understand what the physical dimension of the nuclear architecture is um, right now in in the world the united states and russia together own over 90% of the nuclear of the world nuclear arsenal over 90% there are a total of nine nuclear states so the other seven uh, nuclear states together own about 10% of that nuclear arsenal. In the United States, we constantly hear about the potential threat of uh, Iranian nuclear weapons, but of course, Iran has no nuclear weapons. We constantly hear about the North Korean nuclear threat, and we should hear about it. They have 40 or fewer nuclear warheads. They have 40 or fewer nuclear warheads. Let me just repeat that because the U.S. has um, 5,425 um, nuclear warheads. We constantly hear about it, but if you ask many people in the United States how many weapons the United States has, you get very strange answers. There are many people who have forgotten that we even have any. Um, sometimes when polls have been done, answers are given like perhaps we have 200. Um, and uh, so the, the you know, we, we talk, all, this is just apropos of my saying, we need to hear the other side. We often talk about how paranoid um, Kim Jong-un is. And I think that certainly I'm convinced that he, he must be paranoid. And yet, we have to understand what he's facing, and what he's facing is a country with over 5,000 uh, nuclear weapons that are uh, one one part of which, 2,000 of which, are on constant alert. Um, he's also facing the fact that the United States has over 800 uh, foreign military bases, including a, approximately 200, I believe, in the Pacific. Um, countries like China and North, North Korea don't have uh, foreign military bases, or China might at this point 
I, I think I'm safe in saying if it has any, it's under five We when we have um, over 800. So we just have to understand what the other side is looking at. In the United States, we sometimes seem to have lost the capacity for symmetrical thinking. In fact, this is somewhat on my mind because at least some uh, neuroscientists believe that power brings about the way this was once formulated, uh, power brings about brain damage. And what they mean by that is that people in power um, have a diminished capacity for uh, in their mirror neurons uh, for, for really thinking about how something looks from the other side. Um, and uh, that seems to be the situation we're in today, um, both in, in the example of the uh, conflict between Russia and Ukraine and the, the terrible invasion of Ukraine by Russia, um, and also in the, in the East. Yeah, the, the the Americans, the groups, the war thinkers or political thinkers that have supported quite an aggressive stance with respect to well to Russia for sure, certainly, but also for China, as you say, and, and for other countries as well, is a it's a real phenomenon, isn't it? I mean, what they call the neocons um, and uh, some of the thinkers that have been around for a while are politicians, don't call them thinkers maybe, uh, but, you know, influential figures that think in, in terms of, you know, primarily militarily and, you know, trying to understand this in the context of, I suppose, a war, a military economy, uh, you know, what Roosevelt talked about, uh, the military industrial complex, that has to be an important part of it, supporting this. I wonder what you think about that. I mean, Joe Biden said today that he was trying to find an off-ramp with Putin. Is that plausible? I, th- I think it is plausible. Um, I think it is plausible. And, and I, I do think that, that you know, Biden has, has at least be t- before I took office, been uh, very good in, on some aspects of the of the lethal nu- lethal and obscene nuclear architecture. For example, before uh, Biden Joe Biden was elected president, he had repeatedly uh, spoken out against the um, this aspect of the nuclear architecture presidential first use. So let me just back up and make sure um, that term is clear. In, in our country and in every one of the nuclear states, the launch of the nuclear missile um, is initiated by the head of state. In the United States, that's one person. Um, in other countries, for example, in Pakistan, it might be three people. But it's truly an obscenely small number of people. So, you know, between... Two billion, you know, and five billion people may be killed. That's the latest statistics that have been given by uh, researchers who study uh, nuclear winter. It's Alan Roebuck and his colleagues at Rutgers University in the United States. Um, Two billion people will die if it's a small conflict, um, and five billion 
if it's uh, an all-out nuclear war. Okay, so those are the number of people that stand to be injured, and yet it's only one person who's authorizing this. There's no second break. There's no third break um, in, in any of these countries. Now, in addition to that, in addition to the fact that we have sole authority of the nuclear architecture, and we have that because the weapon is, is designed, the weapon almost makes it impossible to have what for uh, several centuries following social contract theory and, and the emergence of constitutions, first in the United States and France and then all over the world, constitutions that were primarily designed to do one thing, which is to stop or to slow down the impetus towards going to war and to prevent the uh, heads of state from being able to carry their populations into war. It, it put certain breaks on it that I can that I can talk about. Those have been completely lifted with the invention of nuclear weapons, and we have sole authority. But in addition to that, we even have in some of the nuclear states, like the United States, a first use policy. That means we're not at all going to necessarily wait uh, to retaliate if someone sends a weapon towards the United States. No, we have a first use policy, which means that uh, if we see the need to do a preemptive launch, uh, we will we will do so. I saw there was a quote uh, in the media that Biden wouldn't rule out, you know, uh, first strike with, with nuclear weapons. Is that correct, that he, he, he made a change or he spoke out in a way that was new? Um, it has always been the case in, in the United States and other countries, and I should quickly fold in here the fact that certain countries have uh, renounced first use um, and... It, you know, it changes in different periods. So I don't, I'm a, I'm a little bit wary of just outlining it, but we, we can come back to that. For example, there was a period in the 80s when Russia had a no first use policy, second use only, and kept inviting the United States to join it in that. And, and we declined. And um, I believe that China and India uh, have a no first use and that China in any way, in any rate, keeps its, um, missiles unmated to the launch systems uh, in in the United States we've already got the missiles you know ready to go and in China they have this very important um, restraint of not having the missiles uh, already attached to the delivery systems but to your question um, Biden before he was elected said that he he uh, was against this first use pol- policy in the United States. And when he was vice president under Obama, um, he was on the side of changing that policy. Um, at one point, President Obama himself wanted to change it, but I think he found that he didn't have enough support. Then during his uh, running for president uh, just a short time ago, when President Biden, when now President Biden was then asked about uh, first use, he announced proudly that he had been against first use for 20 years. There was a moment in the state of New Hampshire um, election uh, meetings with citizens where somebody asked him about uh, another uh, politician's stance on first use. And he, I don't want to say he boasted, but because his, his pride in this was completely, warranted. He said that he had long opposed first use. 
So many of us in the United States who who care about this hoped very greatly that he would renounce first use um, in his nuclear posture review. Um, And then last year, uh, we learned that he had consulted allied leaders and allied leaders were persuading him not to give up first use. And, you know, there's there's many painful things um, embedded in this. First of all, he's consulting the allies, leaders, but he's not consulting his own citizenry and he's not consulting the citizenry of those allied countries. So again, it's a small club of men, uh, possibly men and women, but mostly men who have this uh, truly genocidal um, set of instruments at their disposal and who have a policy set up that, that uh, enable them to single-handedly do this. And when any question arises, uh, they consult one another, but not their populations. Yeah, no, no it's, it's interesting you, you say that and to take, you know, Biden at his you know, word or looking for an off ramp. But there, there have been many military commentators or political commentators, diplomatic commentators. I mean, even Kissinger, uh, who, who said, you know, this is where this is going to go. You know, you're, we're heading towards a, a nuclear uh, confrontation or a high risk of it if we don't try and, and you know, uh, find a settlement and a ceasefire and so forth. So it can't be that much of a surprise, can it, that this we've reached this situation. So when he's saying now that he's looking for an off-ramp, surely that is something that should have been there for some time. That's right. And, and um, you, you, you rightly point to Kissinger saying that we're, we're, you know, it's, we're seeing a script for a nuclear war uh, unfold before our eyes. And, uh, and note that, that Kissinger, you know, in, in response to that, probably many uh, citizens in the United States would say, yes, but uh, Russia invaded Ukraine. But Kissinger doesn't say that. He says, he says, when we didn't listen to what Russia was saying about putting NATO closer and closer to its border, um, we were already beginning to enter that uh, script. And, you know, we have to remember that the United States has long had this Monroe Doctrine, which, um, you know, expresses great worry about having anyone in our hemisphere or close to our borders that has you know, a different kind of political system or a different set of allies. And yet we, I've seen many people, many of my, you know, colleagues, when we have conversations about this, act like this is a, just a negligible matter that Russia is, uh, has for years been saying, don't, please don't keep moving NATO closer and closer. And uh, under, under uh, President Bush, uh, we we took a United States in in uh, increasing the number of NATO countries and bringing them closer and closer to the border. Um, you know, was taking very dangerous steps. Yeah. In one of your interviews, you were talking about, and you gave this quote about Gandhi. I think saying, "You can wake a man who's asleep, but you can't wake a man who's pretending to be asleep." And I think you were thinking and writing about this uh, awareness of the population about what's actually going on 
and their willingness to become activists or, you know, become engaged on, on, on these questions, uh, uh, you know, if they're morally, you know, uh, culpable in some way, if we are for allowing you know, leadership to to act the way it does. Can you talk a little bit about that? Why is that the case? What are, there's some structural aspects of this question, aren't there, that, that uh, lend itself to people not really thinking this through or not confronting what the what the real implications, the bloody, devastating implications of of nuclear weapons are. Right, um, and uh, that's a very very important subject and a mysterious one. Uh, it's not one that I really have the answer to, but let me at least say the little that I do know. First of all, populations, citizenries elsewhere in the world have remained very awake to this. So not only do we have many countries that have now joined and ratified the International Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, but even before that, we had many countries that uh, whose states signed treaties um, that made them nuclear-free. So the Treaty of Perlindaba, the Treaty of Bangkok, the Treaty of Rarotonga, uh, and so forth. And in fact, those treaties blanket the whole southern hemisphere. It's the northern hemisphere that has the nuclear states. Um, now, what about the citizens of the, the United States? I every day try and understand why it is that uh, people close their eyes to this. Um, in, in, in part, it's that they don't have information or we don't have information, but even when information is available, um, they, they or we seem to close our eyes. One thing that is very noticeable in the conflict between uh, Ukraine and, and Russia is that at least in communities that, that I travel through, um, very suburbs outside Boston, if I'm just, say, going for a ride, they'll often have uh, posters or placards up in their front yards um, saying that they support U- Ukraine. And the, uh, the, the feeling is that they want to cheer on the side that they believe in, and that that is the only form that political or military responsibility takes these days. So I think that one thing that happened is that with the invention of nuclear weapons, the population's responsibility for overseeing our entry into war disappeared. Um, and we, uh, we, as long as we were involved in conventional wars, um, you can still see that the population had a voice and often dissented, as as was um, strikingly true in in Vietnam. I think that even as, as late as 1971, um, 33,000 soldiers deserted uh, from Vietnam, and also, of course, we had tremendous outcries at home about the um, the, the gravity of wrongdoing in uh, Vietnam. And uh, in fact, in the United States, there was a constitutional amendment passed to lower the voting age from 21 to 18 on the basis that uh, that people of that age had fought in Vietnam or in in, uh, university campuses, they had debated the issue of going to war 
um, on a very high level. I'm not using my language. I'm using the language of the actual congressional testimony, which said that uh, the Vietnam generation had earned for itself and all future generations the right to vote at a younger age. But our executive has seen that um, that having to rely on a draft uh, is is very uh, ungainly from the executive's point of view because then people um, think they can say yes or no and they understand that they can say yes or no not only on the day they agree to fight but on on the next day or the next day so even in the Iraq War in the year 2004, 2,300 soldiers deserted. And by 2007, more than twice that number had deserted just in the first six months. And the Department of Defense, I noticed, took down the desertion figures from their website because they didn't even want to make this visible. But with nuclear weapons, of course, you don't even need any uh, soldier soldier uh, soldiers at all, um, or you need a much smaller number. And um, therefore, in both uh, thinking about nuclear war and in the deformation of conventional war that has happened in the nuclear age, we don't get a congressional declaration of war, and we don't uh, get the ratification of such a declaration by the population, the population is reduced to just turning on the TV to find out, you know, what we're doing uh, in the, in U- former Yugoslavia, what we're doing in um, in Iraq when we invade there, um, what we're doing in Syria. Um, the 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 population has lost all authority over and also all responsibility for. Um, any military actions. It's been in the press today, uh, as you said at the beginning, President Biden was saying about the closest to the Cuban Missile Crisis. So you, your work has looked at the, the governance, the structure, and the way in which, uh, you know, as you say, one person can make this decision. In, 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 in 1962, with the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were, it seems to be, there was a, a wider group involved, even if, you know, it was subject to those, you know, issues that you've, you've mentioned in the structure and so forth. But, you know, uh, Khrushchev with Politburo, uh, Kennedy had a more of a, a broader committee around him. I, I, don't, I don't know what, what, what the situation is today. But it, it does seem, certainly you know, with respect to the Russian side of things, that uh, it's not obvious that there is this broader group. No, you're, you're right. And, but, you know, we should just, we should just think about how broad that broader group was. Um, I mean, you know, it it may well be that uh, President Biden is every morning meeting with uh, the chiefs of staff or with the cabinet. Um, It may be that uh, President Putin is doing the same. um, And and certainly uh, Zelensky is is addresses himself um, not only to his own nation, but to um, all of us in, in very stirring ways. But what what really is the scale of that broader group, even if it does exist? Um, first of all, you know, I, and I think you this point was was audible in what you said. Um, it's voluntary on the on the part of the president. He can or or cannot um, have other people there that he's uh, talking to, um, and it's important to see that in 
cases, we know that that uh, we came close to nuclear war, not only in the Cuban Missile Crisis, but according to Robert McNamara, um, we three times uh, came within what he what McNamara describes as a hair's breadth of all-out nuclear war under the Kennedy administration. Um, President Eisenhower considered using dropping an atomic bomb in the Taiwan Straits in 1954 and, and, and doing so in Berlin in 1959. Lyndon Johnson considered using a nuclear weapon against China to prevent China from getting a nuclear weapon. President Nixon uh, says that he considered using uh, a nuclear weapon uh, four times during his presidency. And, um, and, and, you know, that, what does it mean by saying someone considered doing it? Well, it doesn't just mean, you know, the idea, uh, went through their mind like some, you know, strange fiction that they wouldn't really act on. I mean, these people were coming very close to doing so. And, and for example, um, Nixon in uh, 1969 actually flew 18 B-52s loaded with nuclear weapons towards Russia. This is during the Vietnam, uh, during Vietnam War, and it may just have been a feint or an exercise, but it was a very dangerous um, act to be carrying out. Did these people have any groups around them? Well, yes, but here's what that looks like. Um, Eisenhower, during the 54, uh, 1954 Taiwan Straits crisis, has a number of people with whom he's deliberating, including his vice president, including an ambassador from uh, England, all of whom are pointing out that if he does this, it's going to be um, unconstitutional and he can be impeached unconstitutional because the U.S. Constitution requires that you never go to war unless Congress has uh, issued a congressional declaration, uh, a key piece of the Constitution that we've simply abandoned in the nuclear age to our great peril. Um, so he does have these people there, but he announces that he's going to, uh, he's willing, he's willing to use an atomic bomb, even if it means he has to be impeached. Um, the kind of deliberations that are happening are very different than the kind of deliberation you get in a Congress where all the men and women consider themselves equals of one another. And so they try to outdo each other's arguments. They try to test them dismantle them. Uh, and then that, then the other person can respond. The, the ethic of hear the other side is very much in play. In a presidential um, cabinet meeting or meeting of a small assembly he's invited, there's, there's very little dissent because you've got this awesome figure, uh, the president of a country, sitting there. And um, in fact, Whereas in Congress, when, when they're going to declare war, as happened in the pre-nuclear age uh, four times, um, no, let me correct that, five times, um, you have very clear sentences. What this deliberation is about is the uh, resolution to declare, to, uh, to issue a declaration of war. There's no such clear set of sentences that anyone understands their, themselves to be talking about. So the closest we get to um, an act of dissent in the 54 crisis with Taiwan is, um, is Secretary of the Treasury Humphrey 
saying, uh, well, aren't we going to have a hard time explaining to the American people why um, islands with names they've never heard of, like Kumoi and Matsu, were important enough that we dropped an atomic bomb? And Eisenhower immediately scolds him. A mere look at the maps on the wall will convince you of the strategic importance of those islands. And uh, you know, after that happens, um, Humphrey just is silent and nobody else says, well, you know, I completely agree with Humphrey. Um, and the um, same thing, and these are all in the presidential papers of Eisenhower. And of course they weren't released to the public at the time. They're released only say 30 years later. And by that time, everyone can just say, oh, well, see, it didn't happen. The same thing is true in the 1959 crisis in Berlin. Um, by this point, um, Eisenhower had convinced himself that if he just invited a couple of people from Congress to be present uh, during the deliberations, maybe that would be more constitutional, which is, by the way, preposterous, um, because the whole point of that constitutional provision is that you get the full assembly to debate this openly, and today that would be 535 people. Anyway, he has a couple of, uh, you know, maybe one senator or a couple of people from the House there. And Senator Fulbright says, I, I just don't understand what we're saying. Are, are you saying that um, if, if uh, the East Germany um, takes out the uh, highway and bridges and we begin to, and the people on the west side begin to rebuild the roads, and then a GDR soldier fires a rifle that will then drop an atomic bomb in response to that German soldier firing a rifle at the repair company. That point about the the, the broad discussion, the, the isolated decision maker, as it were, the, the risks of, uh, as you say, a slightly larger group discussing it doesn't fundamentally change it. But maybe to some extent, uh, you, you might imagine, might slightly reduce the risk of, you know, if Putin's operating in complete isolation. But the broader point you make is, is, is certainly so powerful. And one of the points that you make throughout is just the susceptibility to unknown factors, to risks and the dangers. And uh, I think with one of, one of your interviews, I was really uh, shocked to see the, I, I think it was the bombing of Hiroshima, maybe, when, you know, the things that happened was a typhoon, the fuel pump failed, they had to switch planes, things weren't wired, they, they ran out of gas, the, the, the atomic bomb started to arm itself, mid-flight, these kinds of things, um, quite extraordinary. Yes, yeah, and, uh, and, and, on on the way to you know, killing tens of thousands of people, you're you're certainly right. By the way, if you have a choice between one person launching this or having to get a second person uh, to agree, or uh, and and or if you have a choice between two and twelve, uh, in each case you want the larger number. But that larger number has nothing in common with what has been uh, developed over centuries as. Uh, a constitutional restraints on going to war, which is to uh, require the distribution 
of authorization over whether the country's going to go to war to very large bodies of people, the legislature and the citizenry, um, who who are going to bear the injuries and therefore um, ought to be able to assess whether that other country has really done something so horrible that their population deserves to be um, injured as a result. I'm, I'm interested in another, uh, I guess, body of thinking or uh, something that you've been exploring and, and wrote about in your book, Thinking in an Emergency. And this is something that I think also has uh, important parallels with dealing with uh, environmental crisis, uh, global warming and so forth. And I'm wondering whether you could just maybe outline a couple of the key ideas there. And I often ask people whether they think we're in a climate emergency and it's in- interesting because, you know, many people would say we are. And um, uh, I think your book was written slightly subsequent to, is it Naomi Klein's shock doctrine, um, but has some similar overlapping ideas, but also some some, some other uh, directions as well. I'm, I'm wondering uh, you could talk about that, that a little. So the book, Thinking in Emergency, um, which is something that I actually started, I gave a set of lectures of Yale Law School um, in the in 1993, and and just kept working on that idea. And the idea is that that um, yes, we seem to think that in an emergency we should just uh, stand there and surrender our agency. But in fact, if you look at emergency procedures, um, you see that we we actually can uh, we can rescue ourselves. We can take responsibility, and so. Um, what I look at in that book is uh, four different models of how um, how people maintain their ability to keep thinking and acting. And also I look at why it is that people seem to think that in an emergency, you just have to stop thinking uh, and you, you just throw up your, your hands. Um, and you know, one one thing is this idea that well, you either you have to take an action um, or you have to think, and you can only do one of the two. No, that's not true. We'll see that that um, thinking is is completely compatible with acting if it's done in advance. So if you if you move from individuals to community, what communities can do, um, there are really good examples or models of that on the plains of Saskatchewan in Canada where people are widely dispersed. And because of that, they in advance make contracts. I mean, actual documents that they sign um, saying in in emergency, such and such, like a storm, they will do such and such and stand by the people who are in danger. In the case of a fire, they will do such and such. And sometimes they're very detailed, like what piece of equipment they'll bring to to fight the fire. Um, And the result of that is that when you do have emergencies, as happened in the town of Vanguard, when within one eight-hour period, 13 inches of water fell on a low-lying, this low-lying village of 80 households. Um, And, you know, during that time, there were within one hour, a thousand strikes of lightning and so forth, resulting in uh, very devastating follow-up of, of, you know, flooding and sewage that's many feet deep and so forth, and tremendous uh, help from all over that area of Saskatchewan. Um, And there are many examples of, of, there was a big uh, grain elevator fire in uh, Nacom on Saskatchewan Plains, and again, uh, people 
brought trucks bringing water and smaller vanguards of trucks bringing water and uh, people knew whether they were supposed to bring ladders or shovels, uh, et cetera, and got the thing under control. So too, um, in another country like Japan, during the Kobe earthquake, um, the government did, was not really prepared to deal with that uh, that that earthquake, but the because the citizenry uh, had this habit of um, community community organizations. I don't have the right word for it, but um, you know community clubs in in a, in a sense. Three hundred thousand of them across Japan. They had the habits, uh, the the kind of habits of. Uh, addressing emergencies. And ordinarily, these neighborhood associations just do things like fix the electric lights, make sure the, the block has doesn't have any litter, um, etc. But that habit was so instilled in them that they were able to spontaneously bring forward those habits in a much more extreme um, situation. Yeah, we're talking about this idea in the book that that uh, you know uh, abridging normal protocols because it's an emergency situation, and you know clearly we can see some of that still from COVID special you know procedures uh, uh, policies that you know didn't go through the normal protocols and that kind of thing, and and uh, in, in, in you, you write in the book that they actually. I think it was maybe in the case of Saskatchewan, they actually put in place restrictions on the emergency powers. They said, well, it will be, this will operate under these conditions for this period of time. Because surely that is a a, uh, a major uh, risk, just the encroaching, the you know, when, when these powers uh, have been taken, that they're, that they're not given back. Absolutely. So they not only rehearse what instrument they'll bring or what 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 uh, tool they'll bring to address the emergency. They address in advance what will we do if we start having the imposition of emergency laws, and they debate it in advance, and therefore they have uh, limits or constraints on uh, whether those emergency measures can go through. And, and of course, in some cases, uh, they decide that absolutely they'll be uh, permitted, such as closing closing the roads if emergency vehicles only need to be traveling on those um, roads. It's almost guaranteed that during an emergency, there will be a lot of preempting of the, the normal legal fa- fabric. And so it's something one needs to make uh, decisions about in advance. What insights would you say from your research into dealing with nuclear proliferation with respect to the environment, with respect to climate? You talk about some issues, for example, this question of, I think you call it, uh, maybe it's a broad, broadly used term, statistical compassion, this idea when you're talking about very large numbers that people don't feel emotionally involved or engaged also, the idea that, you know, these are threats in the future, the nuclear threats are future threats, so somehow they are unreal in some sense, although presumably with some of the extreme weather we've seen more recently, maybe more people are, are, are seeing that it is real. But I'm just wondering, are there any parallels uh, or, or, or connections that you see in that way? 
Oh, very much so. I mean, the problem of statistical compassion, which is a problem you know, pointed out by um, a, a physician, Hugh McDermott, that we, we're pretty good at narrative compassion if, if a story involves one or two people, but we, we're not naturally good at statistical compassion if it's a large number of people and we don't get any reinforcement. We don't get any training in statistical compassion, whereas we get a lot of training in narrative compassion because every day we're talking with siblings or neighbors and telling each other stories that are essentially narrative compassion, but not statistical compassion. Um, and yes, I think that that both that and the problem of addressing things that are future, where you confuse the fact that it's it's not present because it belongs to the future with the fact with with a very different thing, which is it's not present because it's completely unreal. It's bogus. But things that are in the future are, are by no means bogus or, or unreal. It's just that the clock hasn't um, brought us there yet. And both of those things, statistical compassion and the, the future, I think are addressed by a third um, phenomenon that I look at in the book, Thinking in an Emergency, which is this idea of equality of survival. That is a term used by Switzerland in developing it, the Swiss shelter system, which um, which requires every citizen to build a fallout shelter. And the long-term outcome of that is that 114% of their population has these shelters. Um, and, and yet the, the um, equality of, and, and by the way, that contrasts with, um, b- with the, the problem we have both in the nuclear area where only the leaders of countries have fallout shelters and billions of dollars have been spent on the U S fallout shelters um, and, uh, and none on the population's fallout shelters. Um, it's also in global warming, where we know that wealthy people are finding ways to um, to provide themselves with accommodations during the rising tides, but um, ordinary folk uh, don't have those uh, those solutions. Um, and equality has no meaning in the political sphere if you aren't guaranteeing equality of survival. Uh, so in both the, the the area of global warming and in the um, area of um, the, the nuclear peril. Um, we need to, to be mindful of the importance of, uh, of equality of survival. Yeah, that's a very po- powerful idea. I suppose the uh, nuclear weapons and nuclear peril was certainly the first or the dominant global problem requiring various you know global solutions and uh non-proliferation negotiations. I'm just wondering, you know, global warming is clearly a, a global problem. We now have the fossil fuel non-proliferation treaty initiative. I'm just wondering from your perspective looking closely at the, the the various ebbs and flows uh, of of the non proliferation movement, uh, any lessons and insights? I think that one of the the main lessons is just that we need to believe in individual agency, and we need to believe in the um, the responsibility people have for uh, you know for for joining neighbors and others and 
and really trying to bring about concrete outcomes. And, you know, I've really been struck by how often individual citizens have actually solved the problem. For example, on 9-11, when the United States was attacked, um, the Pentagon couldn't even defend the Pentagon. Flight 77 went right into the Pentagon. Um, Whereas the citizens on Flight 93 acted together, deliberated, they actually voted, they voted, and they brought down the plane and uh, spared uh, that the people in Washington who were destined to be um, struck by that plane. And there are lots of examples of that. Uh, if I can just give one more example, in 2003, the Columbia Space Shuttle, um, you know, crashed and burned. And um, the all over the United States and other places in, in North America, amateur astronomers had noticed it coming through the skies. Uh, and not because they were instructed to do so, but just because they're observant, they're alert, they're using their own sensory acuity. And NASA, uh, the National Aeronautic Space Agency in the United States, says that these people were their heroes because it enabled them to uh, you know, find the, the site and understand and track the whole flight of this, uh, of this space shuttle. Um, but there, there are many such examples. We need to believe that, that um, we, can, we can build a better world and, and a safer world and, uh, and begin to act. That's a great vision. So what's next for you, Elaine? Are you working on a book? Have you a particular research project in mind? You know, I do keep working on uh, beauty and its relation to justice because I think that certain things call on us to help repair the injuries of the world, and and beauty is certainly one of them. Um, And I'm also going to keep working on the nuclear problem and keep trying to find the frequency on which People can hear me or uh, or my neighbor who or whoever is calling out about it because right now um, we remain inaudible even as we walk closer and closer to uh, great peril. I wish you the very best with your ongoing work and thank you so much for your time today, Elaine. Uh, your fascinating uh, research and insights and uh, you know continuing fight. Well, it's a pleasure and an honor to speak with you. Global Witness, a pioneering campaigning NGO that exposes the environmental and human rights abuses by some of the world's biggest companies and most powerful political figures. For 25 years, they've campaigned against the exploitation of the Earth's natural resources, the destruction of indigenous peoples, and corruption that has siphoned billions of dollars from the poorest countries. Global Witness doesn't just expose the abuse of power, it works to transform the systems that allow this abuse to flourish unchecked. Find out more at globalwitness.org. Thank you for listening to the Sustainability Agenda podcast. I hope you found it interesting. It would be great if you could leave a review and share the podcast on social media. You can sign up at iTunes to make sure you don't miss any future episodes.